This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you would like to support the Guy Jeans podcast, please write a review on iTunes or Google Reviews and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you have questions, suggestions, advertising inquiries, or would like to be a guest on the podcast, please email us at guyjeanspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Bart Hall with a different kind of commercial. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Bart Hall Show March 29th to April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. It's called the granddaddy of them all for a reason. But in 1946, when my parents, Fred and Lois Hall, decided to produce an outdoor recreation event, there were no guidelines. So they just started celebrating what they loved, and that continues to this day. We produce these shows because we share the passion for outdoor recreation that everyone that comes to our events shares with us. People that come to our shows are good people, and the world needs more of them. Yes, we have tons of boats, the best fishing tackle, great deals at exotic hunting and fishing destinations. But the most important thing is that we will provide a full day of outdoor recreation family fun. Make new family memories March 29th to April 2nd at the Long Beach Convention Center. Details at hallshows.com. That's hallshows.com. It's a Guy Jeans podcast. Hi there, my name is Guy Jeans and I started this podcast to talk to interesting and motivating people living and manifesting their passions and ambitions into reality. I've always said, if you're passionate and love what you do, you will be successful. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host Guy Jeans and today's guest is 13 time world freestyle frisbee champion. Pretty incredible. He's a keynote speaker. He's an entrepreneur. He worked at Patagonia for 25 years. He's writing a book. And we're going to learn all about my buddy, Chipper Bro. And without further ado, here he is. Chipper, how you doing? Wonderful. Good morning, guy. What's been happening, man? We, we have so much to talk about. We have your surf class, Patagonia, your public speaking now, um, all that kind of stuff. But first thing I want to talk about with you is uh, how we met. 
Well, that's super cool, guy. I've got some <laughs> great memories of that going way back to the Papanata days and Driftwood <laughs> Lane and Canyon Pier Pont style. Yeah, uh, we were definitely big fans of you and your band, but becoming friends became even better. You know, I think it. Uh, I think it was, huh? Right there, was it in uh, Pierpont? Because we lived, you know, a few houses away. Yeah, right down the street from us, you lived closer to the beach than us, and you had that cute little Pierpont bungalow <laughs> that was nineteen uh, seventies style. And boy, you guys lived the brand. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of pre parties and after parties there. I'm not sure all the neighbors really liked me very much, but <laughs> oh my gosh. It was, so much of the innocence of how cool it was back then. And, you know, it was just a, a, a neat time. And I remember the people coming over, you know, and the Harleys would come over and meet <laughs> people and surfers and vagabonds and dirt bags and musicians, and <laughs> just an array of amazing people. And Kelly and I, I was just starting my family and we thought you guys were starting a revolution. <laughs> right. It was so fun, man, living there. Oh, my God, just surfing every day and just the, the beach lifestyle there. Oh, my God, it was so great. What a great place to raise your kids, huh? It really was, you know, and we just had two at that time living down there at 1043 Driftwood. And yeah, it was perfect for that because I think my, my footsteps were like 60 steps from the beach. So wake up in the morning, take the kids down, surf check and getting them in the water early. They just became really cool ocean and, and beach uh, loving kids. I remember the stroller going by so many times, man. We <laughs> <laughs> so great. Oh uh, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. You guys had a few roommates, but did you ever have some of the Papanata gang live with you? Like Bobby or Alan or Bruce? Did, were they ever your roommates? No. Um, my brother Josh was there. Um, and then, had a couple different other roommates move in and out of there, but, uh, all the, you know, the band, all the band guys, well, they lived up the street or down the street or whatever, you know, downtown Ventura. Yeah. Um, but they were all over yeah, the I place. Yeah, I think your, your horn player was Alan and he lived on our street, I think. Alan, yeah, Alan lived really close to you. And then, uh, Jeff Harris, the trombone player, he lived at the top of the street on Monmouth. Oh, yeah, that's right. Monmouth oh, and Driftwood gosh. there. <laughs> Such a cool little so, vibe down there for sure. Yeah, exactly. And you know, just for funsies, how did you get to Pierpont? What brought you there, guy? Oh man, I was uh I was living on the avenue. And uh I ended up uh you know, I was renting a room over there uh I was on Monmouth at the time. And uh I was living I was living on the avenue then I moved to Monmouth which is the top of Pierpont street there, the driftwood area. And then that, that house down where we ended up living, uh, came up for rent, man. And that's how we ended up moving in there. And it wasn't on my credit. It was on, uh, another friend of mine's credit who was a sheriff. Uh, and, um, he, we actually got in because of him. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It's who you know, baby. Dude, a crazy story, man. I don't know if I ever told you this, but this was a crazy story, man. I was just moving into that house, right? And um, it had a little, like, skylight, and I had backed up my truck into the driveway. And, you know, we were, like, three houses away from the, the sand living there. Yeah. 
and um, I, I had just cut one of the dowels. I was just moving into the house, like moving clothes and stuff into the house. And I caught, I had cut this dowel um, to hang my clothes, you know? And so it was about a, I don't know, five, six foot piece of, you know, round wood to hang your clothes on. And well, I, yeah. I hadn't put it in. I hadn't put it in the, um, the closet yet. And um, my friend was all, hey, man, I heard something out there in the driveway or something. And I, I'm really, and it was dark. It was nighttime. And I lifted my, I pulled myself up to the skylight and looked out and there was uh, the, my, the back of my camper shell was open, man. And I'm like, I think somebody's in the back of my truck. And I grabbed that, that dowel. I just in my, my surf trunks, you know, no shirt, no shoes or anything. <laughs> Grab Long my, blonde hair. <laughs> yeah. Went, ran out there and there was this dude in the back of my, my truck, man. He was trying to steal my, my stereo. And I'm like, Whoa. this was like the second time somebody would, um, was trying to steal oh. my stereo, dude. And oh, I, shit. and, um, the first guy I let go, you know, and this guy, I was like, no, yeah, I'm, you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this, you know? And so he, um, I said, hey, man, uh, the cops are coming. Just stay in the back of my truck. And he's like, no, man, I'm getting out. I'm like, no, you're going to, and I had the dowel on his head, you know? I'm like, just stay in there, dude. And he did a real quick move. And, and I don't mean to be violent or anything, but I had never really, I had never really hurt somebody like, you know, or like, you know, crack somebody with a weapon or anything, but this guy came out and he like came at me and like fell on the ground. And oh I, my gosh. I took that dowel and just cracked him on the head. Like crack. And then he like, oh. um, I'm all stay down dude. <laughs> and he like, he came after me again. I'm all crack on his head again. And I'm like, just stay down. And Holy then he, and then he grabbed, this is my first introduction into the house. <laughs> and the next, the next thing I know, he grabs my legs, you know, and then we're rolling around on the ground and like fighting and oh my God. And we're going at it, you know, and you know, when you see red, I don't know if you've ever seen red where, you know, you don't feel or anything you don't feel nothing you know when you're in that adrenaline rush you know right, i right. never really felt that like oh. you know it was crazy adrenaline mm. and um he took off running you know towards the beach and um he ran down to the end of the lane there and went up the stairs and i followed him and he uh he was running you know like when you're running in a bad dream you know when you're running and somebody's chasing you yeah, well, he was the guy that was getting chased, and I was the guy that was chasing him because I ran in the sand. Oh. I ran in the sand yeah. every day, you know. So he was like struggling to run in the sand, and I, oh. I caught up to him and tackled him, and I don't know, oh man, I got him into a gosh, he, this crazy headlock, you know. And finally, he gave up. And dude, I I got him, and he had glove. He's like a professional um, thief, man, and he had gloves on and hood and all this kind of stuff you Whoa. know and uh luckily he was uh, he was smaller than me <laughs> anyway i got him in headlock walked him all the way up to the top of the you know where monmouth is to where my my friend who's this giant monster of a man and i'm like jim and i and i yell and i'm like jim come out and he comes out in his boxer shorts you know and he's this big old dude He's like, what's up, guy? And I'm like, dude, hold this guy, man. And he just broke his oh, arm. No. I'm like, I got him. 
And then, you know, um, two cop cars came and they're all, is this the guy? And I'm like, yeah, he just broke into my truck. And, oh, we got him. And they handcuffed him and took him off to uh, jail, you know. Freaking A. That is gnarly. And what was crazy was uh, my roommate, that's coming back to my roommate, my roommate worked in the jail. And I called him up. I'm all, hey, dude, they're bringing this dude who just broke into my truck. And he's all, he's finished, my friend. (laughs) 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 So he ended ended up getting... uh, uh, deported back to uh, Mexico, this kid. Wow. Yeah, oh, man. man. But, but that was my, nice. my introduction to that uh, house, man. <laughs> right, right. And you talk about that adrenaline, you know, it's like weird when you get to that red state. You're, you're a peaceful guy and stuff, but man, all yeah. of us are, you know, what would you do in that situation? And, you know, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, I'm kind of a non practicing Buddhist, but find myself at times going, Oh, fuck him up, you know? Don't don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And and dude, when I came down from that, I was like all bloody. My knuckles were all bloody. My knees, my feet. I was just like, and I came down and I was just like, I felt, I almost, you know, was like, man, I I messed that dude up and I felt bad about it. You know, it was like the adrenaline came down and and then my buddy, the cops all, don't worry about it. I live for that stuff, man. You did a good job. Oh my gosh! With the beach so close, did you did you surf out front? Were you surfing? Yeah, man, I I, I love that little break right there. You know, when it get when it got good off that jetty that that left, and then go on the other side and fish the ride. That was fun. Yeah, wasn't that fun? Kind of had a little magic of each season, you know. Oh man! When little springtime or summer swells late, and of course, you know who's still there is John Carmen and Alicia. Uh-huh. You know, the, the Carmen lived at the end and they played volleyball and stuff. But anyways, it's such a great hood down there. You taught my, uh, we're going to talk about surfclass.com here in a, in a bit, but you oh. taught, you taught my cousins years ago how yeah. to surf. They were from Missouri and you did a little clinic for them down on the beach in the oh, beer right pond there. And that was cool, man. And they were all stoked. They still talk about that. Yeah. I want to talk yeah. about, I want to definitely talk about surf class, but I'm going to kind of go from the beginning and, um, you know, how you were, well, you were 13 time world Frisbee freestyle champion, <laughs> which is crazy to think about, which is amazing. Right. And I've seen you in action. I've seen you practicing, of course, on the beach, but I, in, and in front of your house and I've, I've seen you open up for my band. Yeah a couple times oh, <laughs> doing yeah. that. I know. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Remember that? And I'm um, doing all yeah. your tricks with your buddy and, and, uh, and people have no idea how hard that is and how, how long it takes to probably master those tricks and stuff like that. But talk to me a little bit about how you even got into freestyle Frisbee. You know, like we were talking about earlier, you know, some of those, that of the seventies was such a great, time you know and you yeah. could really just kind of this carefree and the 70s was cool and then about 79 and 80 you probably remember the term alternative sports yeah and uh you know there was the traditional sports of basketball baseball football and those type of high school sports even that were organized yeah for me personally i was kind of always second string you know i love volleyball but 
you know, I just couldn't, I just wasn't that athlete, except when I found surfing at 10 years old, I was like, this is what I really like. And of course, that was like 1978, and localism was hot, and, you know, my beach, my wave was popular, and pro surfing hadn't even really been born yet. There was the, uh, this was the beginning of the birth of extreme for these alternative sports. And in that, um, I, when the surf was flat, I'd play Frisbee out. I grew up in Santa Barbara and, uh, my dad at an early age taught me that, uh, Chipper, you were born into a royalty. You have the mountains in the ocean. Enjoy it. (laughs) And uh, we were a divorced family. My my mom was amazing mom and she, uh, my two sisters and we had to be at home by five o'clock and have dinner on the table. And she taught me so much about love and family and, and sticking together, even in a separated situation. You know, she just came to the table with love. My dad was a little more flamboyant kind of party guy having fun. And, but again, we we're kind of a poor family. So that royalty I was like, wow, this is a beautiful place to live, and surfing kicked in. And then, again, when the surf was flat, I'd play frisbee. And back then, you know, doing a behind-the-back catch, yeah. doing an under-the-leg catch, most people had kind of long hair back then, and you'd spin around, your hair would spin. And, you know, they called it freestyle. And I felt that connection to being free. Yeah. And I love having kind of my own style. I wasn't, again, beating to the normal drum. And so there were, I found out there were freestyle Frisbee tournaments. I was like, wow, you can go and do these tricks, catch it behind your back. I thought I was, you know, I, I could <laughs> enter. You know, I always had a competitive edge to myself. And so uh, I realized that you had to have a partner in it. And so... Um, I found a partner, Jay Hinkle, my first partner out of Santa Barbara, my high school buddy, who we just played Frisbee last Sunday together, <laughs> 45 years of frickin' jamming Frisbees. And so Jay and I started going to some tournaments. And at the time, there were 35 tournaments across the United States that you could actually win money at. And if you did well at enough tournaments, I think it was like five tournaments, and you had to make the semifinals, you could get an invitation to the national championships where you could actually win some good money. So I was putting this together thinking, man, if I could get to a tournament, do some tricks, and maybe I could pay my rent. (laughs) I lived in a beach house with some friends down on – Butterfly Beach in Montecito, and it was seven roommates. We called it the uh, Hotel California, and it just <laughs> was a party house for us. And So every day I got to just work on my craft of learning how to play Frisbee. And we went to some of those tournaments, and Guy, it was pretty funny because when we got started, I um, well, straight up, I didn't make it out of the prelims the first couple tournaments. You know, I was like, dang. And I realized, wow, what does it take to get to that next level of even being a semifinalist, let alone a finalist, which there was probably 70 teams back then. Wow. And they took process of elimination with 10 teams in the final. So, you know, they eliminated a lot of teams. Yeah. So uh, we ended up um, 
I just kept practicing and, you know, getting disqualified or, you know, just didn't, wasn't good enough. And I just kept practicing and, um, I was playing with a guy named Joey Hudoklin at the time, and he had been a real seasoned player. I was practicing with him, I should say. And Jay and I would practice with Joey. And then one day Joey asked me, he says, hey, Chipper, I'm going to play in two tournaments next year, and we could maybe qualify for the Nationals. And he was a really good player, like top, top. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. What an honor. Yeah, it was. It was. And so at the time, kind of like in a band, you know, all of a sudden you mix partners up and this band in a different musicians change. And so I would go hang out with Joey and we start doing our stuff. And long story short, we um, ended up making it to the World Frisbee Championships in 1982. And uh, we got up to that day. And I remember practicing our routine and at one point we even went down to uh, palm springs to practice in heat (laughs) where it would be a lot hotter and in some of these tournaments it always wasn't the beautiful climate of santa barbara yeah and so we practiced and and so we practiced this particular routine that took months and months of practice and you know here i am you know as a bus boy and a waiter and trying to make ends meet, you know, paying my rent back then, living on that beach, which I might have mentioned, I had to come up with $200 a month. Was my <laughs> rent. So I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I remember doing our routine, and Guy, it was so neat. Imagine this. Alternative sports were so hot that – 10,000 people paid $5 to get in to watch the World Frisbee Championships. Oh, my God. In a stadium, and this one was in Santa Cruz. It was Cabrillo Stadium. And it was so cool to walk into that stadium. It was like, whoa. Whoa. We're going to go do our thing now. And, you know, there's, uh, in freestyle, you're judged on um, difficulty presentation execution artistic impression there's a lot of uh, not a lot like nine judges that judge you Uh and you're kind of like ice skating you know you get scores and accumulated and tabulated and um one of the worst things to do is to drop it you know Uh and so you're going for the hardest move ever and the wind picks up <laughs> Damn it. Okay, let's try this one and hopefully, you know, and and do you improvise at that moment and not go for it or do you just suck it up and go oh, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And uh so I remember uh hearing the announcement at that tournament and they said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, in fifth place was this team, in fourth place, this team, in third place. Remember, there were 10 teams, and they went from eighth place down, and they go, and in second place, and they named this team, and I turned to join, like, dude, we didn't even get announced. <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought we did pretty good, but I'm like, wow, okay, we must have taken 10th. And it was the coolest thing they just said, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, our, our new world champions is uh, Chipper Bro and Joey. Whoa. And uh, it was pretty neat. And, and that, that really set something to me, though, Guy, about setting goals. 
Right. I think it was kind of neat when I got crowned and we had the medal and I got the money and I got all these prizes and definitely at the top of the heap. Yeah. Um, um, that was uh, a great experience and that changed things a lot, which, um, it began to get, uh, the sponsorship started coming in. And back then again, alternative sports was a hot commodity. Yeah. And, uh, I got scooped up by Anheuser-Busch. Oh yeah. Brand Bud Light. And, uh, my partner, Joey came along with me and our captain was, uh, crazy John Brooks, which I'll see him this weekend <laughs> going to his house to uh, have some three days of, uh, fun. Um, <laughs> good times. <laughs> good times with old buddies. You know, we're still going and that Bud Light Frisbee team, we ended up, uh, uh, I ended up touring the world for, uh, you know, basically nine straight years. And we toured different countries. We did 21 city tours in about 10, 15 states across the country. Unbelievable. We were busy up to 200 days a year. Wow. And we ended up performing for from chili cookouts in Texas to... Um, Opening up for Cheap Trick, Molly Hatchet, Toto, Jan and Dean, Beach Boys, Stephen Ray Vaughn, Santana, and Papanada. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I know. I remember and, you telling yeah. me about that. I remember you telling me about the Stevie Ray Vaughn and opening for for him with your yeah. your Frisbee tricks and stuff like that. What was that like yeah. being in front of all those people like that? You know, it was neat. Um, I really got at an early age. I, I learned uh, when my mom threw me in the Santa Barbara Fiesta Parade. I was eight years old, and uh, I found this time in my life where I was really nervous to go in, on, in the parade and, and with a little sombrero on. And um, <laughs> I, uh, She says, no, just w run, go up the parade, and at the end there's a carnation ice cream truck. You'll get some ice cream. But just wave to people and smile. And, uh, <laughs> I started to uh, go in the parade around the big fiesta floats and the horses, pinatas, and all these things. And... Well, it was so cool. I began to wave at the people, and I saw that they would just wave back. And then I did a big <laughs> wave, and I did a big smile, and it was like a magician. <laughs> the whole row waved and smiled, yeah. and I really went and acted like, I mean, I'd just seen the, the, the cartoon Fantasia with Mickey Mouse. Uh -huh. And he actually takes that broom and goes around, and he made magic with that broom. And I ended up ma just making people smile the whole way. And so when you talk about when I got in front of 40, 50, 60, 80, 90,000 people yeah. um, regularly, yeah. um, it became, um, I, I lived for it. I was super comfortable. Now, I was not that comfortable if I did not have a Frisbee in my hand. You know, I'm not that talented. <laughs> so would you, guys, would you guys be like, you know, backstage and then there's these giant audiences and you guys are getting prepped like, okay, here we go, man. And, and then they announce you guys and you guys would run out on the stage and then do your thing for how long would you guys be out there for? 
Yeah, you know, we had choreographed routines, five minutes. Um, I think you can Google Bud Light Frisbee Team, Stevie Ray Vaughan, South Padre Island, something like that. You're going to see this one particular video. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we, we, we prep backstage, and then we, uh, you know, we're we, we very well polished. You know, at this point in our, in our careers, yeah. we're um, high-level freestylers, but now put yourself in a very limited space. Right. I'm going to say the monitors (laughs) and drums and speakers and all the cords. Oh yeah. And you know, they don't move anything for us. Yeah. Um, And so we developed this routine that is five minutes long. And it's funny when you first get up there and, and, and they're like, so this one, one show with Stevie Ray Vaughan, by the way, I toured um, on our team. I mentioned crazy John Brooks. Yeah, which Joey became the world's greatest freestyler to this day, and Crazy John went on to become um, an overall uh, uh, Hall of Fame frisbee player with seven-time World Disc Golf Champion. Whoa! And he held the world distance record for many, many years, and he would throw distance at our demos and set the thing up and he'd go way out past 70,000 people and we would set a target up onto the stage and I was my time to get on the microphone. Oh. And guy, you know how that is when you can talk into that many watts. It's like, <laughs> yeah, right. it's like you know. It's crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> next up, crazy John Brooks, 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 Brooks from Ventura, <laughs> California. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'd go, ready, cheer him on, throw the disc, crazy. So he'd throw this disc all the way over. This one time, open up for Stevie, the SOB frickin' hit the target, which was over 222 yards. Oh, my God. Yeah, 666 feet. He just rocked it. And to hear that many people, which most people didn't really know what was going on. when I'm like, <laughs> the Frisbee's up. By the time they looked up, it was gone. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like it floated there. It wow. was a trajectory missile. So anyways, here's the fun part. So um, we Crazy makes it back, and they're getting ready. And we'd been really good friends with Stevie and the band and all the guys. Super fun chilly chill with dinners and drinks and fun stevie comes out of his trailer and they're like ladies and gentlemen next up stevie ray vaughn <laughs> through, through our little huddle and he's coming through and he's like did crazy throw yet <laughs> they're like they're like yeah he just did he's like god damn it i wanted to see that can he do it again no way. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't. <laughs> you know, that was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my So anyways, he wanted to have a replay later on. Kind of a funny thing too, guy. I was so excited when that hit the record and, and the Frisbee landed on the stage and I was up there and I got the Frisbee and I in, in me and my emotion and in, in, in excitement. I threw the Frisbee back into the crowd like, yay! <laughs> and Crazy made it back. He's like, ah, ah, did, did you get my Frisbee? <laughs> oh, shit. oh, no. So after the concert was over, we just hang out for a bit, let the crowds bleed out. You know, we got VIP anyway, watching these, the, everything go out. And this guy backstage comes up to the back gate Excuse me, sir. I'm like, 
yeah. Like, I got your Frisbee. No way. I caught it. Do you want it back? Oh. I'm like, dude, you're kidding me. How cool is that? All, yeah, I actually said, come backstage with me because there's all these catered foods still, and he got to hang with Stevie and everybody. <laughs> I was so happy I got the Frisbee back. <laughs> Well, craze, here's the frisbee back. Isn't that amazing? But, you know, going from just playing on the beach, having fun, and then entering a, a tournament, and then not doing so well, and then keep practicing, not giving up, and then ending up on stage with Stevie Ray Vaughan and touring the the world and just having a blast, all because of you wanted to play with the frisbee. Unbelievable! Well, I, Great story. It is. And- and I just want to add one more, and it's real quick, but yeah. we got to head over. Is that okay, guy? Oh, we've got plenty of time, man. You go for it. Super cool. I just wanted to roll this one out. So we get back from the tours, and we hit the, um, it was like uh, September or something of 86. And uh, the tours were over, and we got home, and the phone rang. And crazy, our, our captain picked up the phone and said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And we just finished touring with uh, Jan and Dean. <laughs> Jan and Dean, 60s rock band, right? Yeah. Little Old Lady from Pasadena and uh, Dead Man's Curve and a few hits they had. But they hung up and they said, Jan and Dean just asked us to go on tour with them. I was like, where? They said, China. Whoa. I was like, what? They said, yeah, it's the first American rock and roll tour in China as a cultural exchange and they invited uh they invited uh jan and dean and they invited us and so um long story short this is like i I just love to talk to you more about this another time but (laughs) as as we got into beijing uh, jan and dean were really big by the way like china people liked them they were about 20 years to you know 20 years behind in music (laughs) for reals and so our first gig was in beijing and uh so many intricacies happened in this um with uh being in front of the uh military they're watching a cultural um show that's you know um in communist china here's americans here doing this frisbee show uh frisbee and jan and dean show and all these things they hired dancers and so there's so much to that but i'm just going to roll over to when we got to shanghai uh we were in there and crazy john decides you know we got to fire these audiences up because it's the first concert these people kids students whoever could afford that i think 30 dollars was kind of a lot um to go to this concert and i think they had like twenty-five thousand people showed up and uh crazy fires up the crowd he's like yeah (laughs) doing these things and he runs up into the crowd during this jan and dean jam you know and he runs into the crowd runs into the audience catches eye with this boy i'm about eight feet away watching crazy john sticks his right hand out where that boy stuck his right hand out and they grab hands and crazy pulled that boy out of his seat and started dancing because it was a perfect moment. Uh-huh. Right? 
it was like, oh my gosh, the B crazy John, by the way, is an exceptional entertainer <laughs> and he could dance and sing and move and he's moving around and the kid starts dancing. It was the coolest thing. Completely offbeat starts dancing like Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> Classic. So in this moment of, of amazement, amazement, uh, the boy is taken um, by security guards and taken off the, the uh, stage area where he was, in, in the aisle area, I mean, and took him away. And um, ended up arresting him and putting him in jail. And the people he was with protested underground because they took one of the students from Shanghai University pro-democracy movement Uh in 1987. Wow. What happened to him? 86. So... He gets arrested and goes, well, there is a part in here that's, um, there's a lot to talk about with this particular part. Crazy John did witness him getting beat up oh. and kicked and stuff with these guys in the big robes and uh, not robes, j- blue jacket-like things. They look like dicky jackets, but oversized. Uh-huh. Anyways, so here's what happened, though. That That happened, and then students started to underground protest and we got to the next city from Shanghai we're on tour going down with like seven city tour working our way to Hong Kong which is going to be a couple weeks later working our way down the next night what do we do blow the roof off crazy John's going off we got actually tied one of the we found a rope that we could tie the guitarist waist to and let him swing out over the audience playing guitar. <laughs> we're thinking of all, because this is Crazy's ideas, by the way. He just, oh, I got an idea. Because <laughs> our full, our routine was only like 10 minutes out of this full 24-hour day. Uh-huh. <laughs> got to do something. So, got to do something. That's when we, got, we hung with all these bands and stuff and helped with load in, load out. This helped the, the uh, execution of the show, you know. Yeah. And so uh, get to the next town, get to the next town. We finally get down to Hong Kong, and the director, which we were with, Lorimar Pictures, HBO, and these other peeps, there's about, I think, about 35 people in our entourage. And... Uh, we ended up uh, getting to Hong Kong, and the newspapers were out because now it's finally freedom of press. Each town we went to, they're like, hey, any reviews? Did we hear anything? How was the show? Kind of looking to see if they made the press. Any? Zero. Zero. No freedom of press. Got to Hong Kong, and the director said, Everybody, when we get into this hotel, there's going to be reporters and people, and we have an emergency press conference with the band. And it's BBC, NBC, ABC, blah, blah, blah. Wow. And the newspaper, which I have copies of, 
shows the largest demonstration sparked with riots Whoa. are beginning to start because of the Jan and Dean tour. Oh, boy. So when we got to uh, the press conference, and by the way, the, the, the director looks all the way across the audience uh, to our entourage and looks right at crazy John and goes crazy. Don't say a word. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are going to talk. Uh-huh. We're going to get through this. We don't know what's happening here. So fast forward history guy. And that movement sparked the demonstrations that led up to Tiananmen square in 1989 with the guy that stood in front of the tank. Oh my God. I remember that. Yep. And he put his hands up in front of like eight tanks. Yeah. And, and, um, in Newsweek magazine in that issue, it said the demonstrations were sparked by members of the Jan and Dean duo, <laughs> which basically said crazy John fucking started it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. That's crazy. What a great story. Yeah, from that from that wanting to learn to play Frisbee to, uh, you know, <laughs> what an incredible, incredible journey, guy. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. That's so cool, man. Well, let's talk about uh, going from that to, uh, I'm assuming you went to Patagonia after that. You're right. Is that right? You're right. Yep. I was actually uh, living on Driftwood Lane with you, and I was uh, just kind of coming off the tour. And when I first, first was there, we had babies. Um, I was trying to find landscape jobs because that's kind of what my, what my passion was as a little boy. Yeah. And then uh, Alicia Carmen, who I mentioned earlier, walked on our street and said, Hey, Chipper, you should work at Patagonia. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of them. I always wanted to be sponsored by them. They, don't sponsor, <laughs> they only sponsor uh, environmentalists. <laughs> so I said, yeah, that would be cool. She said, we'll put together a resume. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, Pencil and paper and. <laughs> you know, ready to write it down. Of course, I put my first name on the resume, my last name. I'm like, okay, now what? I got a phone number. Um, okay, let's see. Work history. Uh, let's see. I was a, uh, oh, I know. I'm going to put pro frisbee player world champion. There you go. <laughs> and then I'm going to put. I don't know, surfer. <laughs> and Perfect. then I love gardening, so I'm going to put gardener. <laughs> and I actually showed it to a friend of mine who was kind of a good, you know, resume reader. <laughs> he, goes, <laughs> he goes, Chipper, you know, this is a complete... <laughs> he goes... This will be perfect for Patagonia because he goes, quote, I hear they hire dirt bags. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a compliment because in my book, a dirt bag was someone that lives at the edge of their passion yeah. and loves the beauty that they want to be a part of, you know, mm-hmm. they just commit themselves to that. And so 
I showed up in Patagonia in 93 and, uh, I started off there as the receptionist mm-hmm. and I really chose the job too. Cause they had great childcare program. Right. I remember that. So, uh, I got to put my kids in childcare and now Kelly's pregnant with Nathan and, uh, we have to move from driftwood lane now. And that's when we finally got, got to, uh, get our place we have now up in midtown here yeah and just kept commuting to work every day and i uh, ended up uh having just an amazing journey at patagonia um, doing several different jobs from helping to incorporate organic cotton and doing an organic cotton t-shirt program i remember yep selling blank t-shirts to the world yep and learning about screen printing and doing sales which you know, I got to travel then again with the company and having fun. And yeah. And then they moved the, the division up to their offices in Reno, Nevada. And we had just bought our house. I was like, oh, shit. So I kind of went back to reception. I was like, oh, I'll be here for a little while. And then I was trying to think, well, what the hell am I going to do in the company now that I could just be here? And Guy, the position of CEO came up. and i applied for it Uh uh-huh and in fact i was the only one that applied for ceo really and yeah it was pretty well i mean i'm so sorry in-house employees yeah Um, they they had a lot of outside candidates we were very worthy of the position but um yvonne the founder of patagonia yvonne i thought it was a great idea he actually told me he goes Fortune Magazine is going to love this story, you know, from receptionist to CEO. Yeah. And I ended up doing four days of, uh, of uh, interviews. Met with HR. I met with production. Chris Tompkins uh, was Chris McDivitt at the time. She was the uh, CEO at the time. Uh-huh. Just one of the greatest um, cha- game changers of our, of our time. And then Yvonne himself took me up to Hollister Ranch and uh, we went surfing and free diving for the day and went down and spear fishing and catching lobsters with our bare hands and just this outdoor amazing adventure with him. <laughs> and we got back with our catch, which he freaking outfished me, out, out speared me, out held his breath, out did <laughs> everything, you know, and here I at the time was about you know, 38, he was 68, <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's the man. So we're walking down the beach afterwards and he's like, so, you know, what's a better title than CEO? Oh no. He goes, owner, founder. What? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, Chipper, you and all the employees at Patagonia, he goes, I think you guys do the best job in the world. Hmm. I think you're the best workers. But he said, not one of you inspires me. I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, I like to hang out with people that like to change the game. For example, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm not an inventor, but I love innovation. And I love it when, a, when an employee can come up and say, Let's try this. Yeah. And begin to change it. He said, quote, 
even if somebody came and said, let's make ball bearings from now on, and it made good business sense, let's do it. If it <laughs> sticks to the purpose of the company, the mission, and yeah. helps the company to, of course, give back its, uh, its values to the world. So that set with me really neat. And then the other thing that was neat, when I got back to HR, I said to him, I said, you know, after these four days of interviews, especially hanging with the man, I said, um, I'm not ready. I said, I do want to be there someday, but I believe that every person at that level that leads the company um, should know every position in the company. I said, they should know about sewing and construction yeah. and what the quality does in a shirt. Uh-huh. So they're not, they should know about supply chain, what's happening there. They should know about marketing and how they come up with concepts and, and design. You know, let's talk about how it all works. And so I said, I'd like to um, do some cross training. And I come back to reception. I said, I'd like to start in production. I want to learn how it all works. And I kind of thinking to myself, I might move into production. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it began to work. And the CFO at the time, Allison May, I sit in, the, in her office and she said, let's just chart this out. And we called it the Employee Development Program, EDP. And we layered that out in like 98, 1998, and still rides today in in 2023 for any employee anywhere in the company to develop themselves as an EDP. Nice. Enough. That's kind of leaving a neat legacy. Yeah. But what... What I really caught on to, because A, I didn't get the job, so I'm back at reception. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm pulling out the employee manual one day, and I read it said, you can take four months off unpaid. Yeah. And and there were some other employees that had inspired me to do that. And, you know, how do you do that and stuff? So I was like, let's see. So. Then I decided, by the way, I needed to get a part-time job because, again, I didn't get the high-paying job. Uh huh. I had to get a second job. And so I, Kelly, my wife, said to me, why don't you do what you love? Why don't you teach surfing and Frisbee? Start a surfing school or something. Mm. So I'm like, all right. So I looked online, and I bought the website surfclass.com, and we started this business. And I thought, well, I could work part-time teaching surfing. And so, guy, I, that employee manual, I'm like, wow, they need me in the summertime. How can I take time off just to go run the business? Yeah. So I applied for four months off leave. Part of it was paid. So I used vacation time. Well, yeah. guy, for 14 years in a row, I took four months off. So sick. And ran surfclass.com. And it was so fun. You know, in the early years, I'd just go out there and I'd leave the front desk and go to the beach. And, man, hundreds of kids, lots of staff. I mean, I'm running a business. Operations and risk management are just, you know, at the forefront. And uh, so when uh, I found out about the business, the membership, or the program called 1% for the planet. Mm -hmm. 
and it's where businesses can give back 1% of sales to environmental direct action organizations. Mm -hmm. And Patagonia was beginning to develop this program with another guy. Kind of added, you know, um, oh my gosh. Um, is it the is it the guy from uh from blue blue ridge out blue ridge fly blue um oh yeah the um the guy this fly fishing outfitter yeah yeah he's a fly fishing guy yeah dang it we're gonna edit this part out and get his name oh, right no worries so <laughs> anyways it's all bitching so surf class ended up long story short we became the first business of one percent for the planet we're the first member and we give it to Patagonia and Blue Ridge, Blue Ribbon Flies. Yes. Uh, to those guys, th that they are the founding members. But surfclass.com, uh, uh, innocently, not even trying, we just went out and applied for it, and we happened to be the first member. So for the past 23 years now, Surfclass has been around, and we've had just an amazing journey of how we built our business from day camps of what we wanted to be, you know, how many kids could we get in the summer mm -hmm. and definitely competing with these other camps. Cause we started off, there was two. And as you know, now there's 12, yeah. you know, surf camps around that come and go and they're seasonal or whatever. And so uh, we prided ourselves in uh, growing that business in kids. And then we, after a few years, maybe we were about five to six years in business, and we started taking on corporate outings. And Patagonia became one of our clients. Nice. It was so cool. <laughs> so their sales meeting, you know, they'd hire me to do sales meeting, and they'd bring in 30 people from out of town for surfboard rentals and surf <laughs> lessons for new hire employees. And this all started early on. And uh, so – as the, as the business grew, we started just doing big groups. I said, Kelly, look at we can do more money with big groups than we can doing a five-day camp with, you know, 15 kids. We can get 100 kids yeah. in, three, in three hours. Yep. <laughs> and we did it. We developed these programs with these large groups, and uh, one group in particular from uh, Israel, they sign um, 60, 80, 100 kids up twice a summer, sometimes three times a summer. And uh, we manage those kids. We take 10 to 12 kids at a time. We put them in a rotation of learning this, the process of surfing. Our methods, basically, every kid stands up and rides. Yeah. They got double pumping shock assigns jumping off the board <laughs> and rotate those through. So we ended up eliminating all of our day camps. We said, we don't have to do that anymore. I was so happy. And we've all of a sudden developed this very unique niche corporate and large group market. Very cool. And we developed that going in. It was so cool. And all of a sudden, this little tiny thing that the world got a phone call from called COVID. Mm -hmm. And all our big groups went away. And everything went away, of course, for that minute. Yeah. But all of a sudden, when we started getting our resuscitation back, um, we found that a lot of kids needed to get outdoors. Oh, yeah. So we were like, 
Hmm. So I just kind of rebranded, and it's called it um, Surf Science and Outdoor Ed. Oh, nice. And we, we presented it to our charter schools, and we signed up three charter schools in Ventura County and Kern, Kern County. Oh, right on. And, yeah. And so um, these kids in, what are they called, charter schools, homeschool, those types of children, back a year ago or a year and a half, they had needed a place to get out. Oh, my gosh. Guy, we were packed. That's so cool. Our program just filled up so good. So what do you do? You 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 throw a little science in there and some waves and start, talk about some of the different stuff at the beach and all that and you incorporate all that stuff into it? We try to, yeah. We yeah. really want our classes to be process-driven. And, you yeah. know, one of the important thing I think is that one of the takeaways we want people to have are a few key, key points. And one is we call ocean science. And it's generally basically how to read a surf report. What do the three numbers mean in the report? Uh, cool. No matter where you go, you're going to see the, the height, the intervals, and the direction. And when you start to understand that, guy, as you well know, you're like, wow, there's a 300 rolling. I should probably go to a west-northwest facing beach. Or if there's a 270 lining up, I'm definitely going to a point break. Oh, 180 cool. set up. I'm, I'm doing my uh, 180 south. I'm going to get my south facing breaks. And then number two would be our um, marine biology. We huh. really want people to understand the importance of ocean, uh, excuse me, the, um, the connectedness we all have in such a diverse, wild place of kelp and sea life and how does that connect to the world. And why is the ocean two-thirds water? Is there more trees or more kelp? Is there more stars or more sand grains? And all these fun questions. Why is the white water white? And then the last thing we like to leave people with is, is environmental direct action. You know, yes. beach cleanups are one thing, but how do you get involved with, let's say, like the Surfrider Foundation and the Blue Water Task Force? And literally go out and help them on a Saturday or a Sunday with official uh, instruments that help measure water quality from our creeks and from our oceans and our beautiful coveted beaches that we love so much. And we all know after raids and pollution and whatnot, we have to be keen on environmental uh, awareness, but more so giving direct action to yeah. those problems. So cool, man. Sounds amazing. I wanted to, I wanted to tell you a story and you may or may not know this, um, but you were real instrumental in helping me get started with my fly fishing business. Um, and Yvonne, um, you know, back in the day when you were, um, I was telling you, I think we're on the beach or something. I think I was telling you, Hey, I'm going to, I'm starting a, a fly fishing guide service. You know, oh, dude, I, We've got some, uh, if you need to borrow some waders, we got a closet full of waders you can borrow for your clients <laughs> and all this stuff, you know. And I'm like, seriously? Yeah. And I'm like, seriously, yeah. dude? And you're like, yeah, dude, come by. <laughs> and so I, you know, the next day, I, I, I think that next weekend I had a couple of guide trips, you know, and I, I was playing music and then driving up to the current and driving back, you know, or sleeping in the back of my truck, you know, and that's how I was pulling it off. But I came to... Uh, uh, Patagonia and you were at the front 
desk there, you know, doing your thing. And um, we were talking and stuff. And then in walks uh, Yvonne, uh, the owner of Patagonia. And you're all, hey, Yvonne, this is a guy. He's opening up a guide service on the on the Kern. And he turns and he's all, hey, how you doing, guy? He's all, do you, do you know the Kern very well? First question. And I'm like, yeah, I think I do. And he says, well, I'm going to give you some advice. He's all the best fly fishing guide I know is this dude from uh, Canada. And what he does every year is he snorkels the river every year before he guides, before the guide season and just sees what the fish are doing and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to do that. (laughs) So, you know, for years I would get in the river and I would snorkel the river and I'd watch the fish and I'd watch the bugs and the insects and it made me a better guide. And that was all from his advice. And, that's um, cool. Yeah. And I, I, I haven't actually got to tell him that, you know, I haven't, um, seen him. I, I did leave a, a note for him that he helped me. I don't know if he ever got it, but one of these days I'd like to, uh, you know, tell him that story and, and how, how it helped me, you know, create my fly fishing community up on the Kern river. You know, it was really, really inspiring for him to do that for me. So I don't know if you remember, really cool. remember that man, but you really helped me, man. I would come in there. I'd borrow those waiters because <laughs> I didn't have, you know, any money to buy a bunch of waiters and stuff. And you'd help me out with all that stuff, man. So thank you. That buddy. is so cool. You're welcome. And guy, <laughs> I do remember because funny enough, I was uh, excited for uh, hanging out with you this morning yeah. and I was talking to Kelly and I told her that story word for word that you just said. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> the thing I is, his, oh, go ahead. No, I think his parting words were, you know, he just was like, get a mask. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it did, man. It helped me so much. And, you know, the, the thing about Patagonia too, you know, I, you were able to start surf class by doing that, you know, and, you took me on a tour one time. I, I think back in the day, um, Papanata had played there for some parties and Lionize had played there at parties and stuff. But you took me on a tour of the place one time and and it was just amazing, man. Just everything that, that goes on at that company. And I mean, what do you what do you think that makes that company work? I mean, is it all the little programs and all the stuff that they have for their employees? I mean, it like seems like everybody's really happy there when they're working there. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, yeah, go ahead, finish. Oh, and I mean, I have friends that are still there and they, <laughs> you know, they've been there for 30, 30 years or something, you know, one being you know Ro- Mike, Mike, one, Mike Simpson. Yeah. Mike Simpson and uh, Robert Bent. Oh my God. Those, oh, guys, hell yeah, those guys have been rocking it for a long time, you know? Yeah. 35 yeah. plus. Uh, yeah. Those guys are. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they're happy. Totally. Totally, man. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, know, it's interesting. Yeah, go you know, ahead. Oh, sorry, you know, Mike plays uh, guitar with in in my band Stoneflies now. I don't know if you knew that. Well, I I'm just so disappointed. I missed you guys at uh, at Tony's the other night. Kelly showed me the Facebook pictures. Yeah, I could have just played Harry Carey right then because I was <laughs> like, I can't believe I missed it. Well, we'll be back. Anyways, I heard. Yeah, she gave me some other dates in May. Yeah, exactly. Put on the calendar this time, so that's perfect. What are the dates in May? May eighteenth. We're we're back there. May eighteenth. Yeah. Tony's Pizza, baby. I yeah, love man. It. Okay. We're good. having a blast. Oh my god, we're just older dudes playing some ska reggae stuff, having fun, you know. 
<laughs> I'm so glad, man. You're you're in your element when you're doing that, you know. And I think fly fishing's your job, and you love it, and it's passionate. But music bleeds through. You become one, you know. Yeah. And you built your brand up, by the way, you know. Yeah. And I love like a question Yvonne's been asked, and I'll ask you. Are you more proud now of your business that you've done with fly fishing and developing your brand? Or are you more proud of your music? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I love it all, you know. I love, I love building things from scratch. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff, I was going to ask you the same question, you know, a lot of the stuff is manifested, you know, just we just are, are living it and breathing it. And, and then all of a sudden it just kind of happens. And I think that's you know, live in the brand, you know, you just got to live that lifestyle. And I'm proud of, uh, I'm proud of the fly fishing, the fly shop and stuff. Thanks for asking the question. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, I've met some of my best friends through it. Um, I've met, you know, some really amazing people and the, the river is a better place because of it. Um, you know, the, the little town of Kernville is just so amazing. It's just a beautiful little mountain town with this beautiful river that runs through it and all these outdoor folks just tearing it up. <laughs> and I mean that in a good way, you know, river rafting, yeah, yeah. mountain, mountain biking, um, you know, just uh, fishing, um, just everything you can think of, rock climbing. It's just an amazing little town. So I'm proud of that. And I'm I'm proud to I'm proud to still be playing music, you know. It's an honor to be able to play music for people and you know have people enjoy it, you know. It's just it's such an honor to be able to to do that and people still still getting out there skanking, you know. <laughs> and that's that's what's fun for me is just seeing all those folks having a good time oh, for sure, you know. Oh, that's man. the best. So good. Yeah. Well, you're an entertainer, so when you see that's what, you know, your people are happy and doing it, then you're on, you, you've accomplished what you wanted to do. Absolutely. One last thing I wanted to ask you about is that, you know, you've done all these things and, you know, uh, a Frisbee champion to working at Patagonia to an entrepreneur. And now you're doing, are you speaking now in front of people and motivating people? Uh, I've had my moments. Yeah. And I'm kind of rebranding myself now. Um, I, I, uh, last three years, of course, hasn't been the greatest for public speaking. Yeah. And so, um, as it's began to resurface, I was like, Hmm, i being very specific of where I wanted to share my stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to make sure the audience was the right audiences that would have the takeaways <clears throat> that I want my audience to have. Um, inspired to, like you say, live the brand of where they work and show people how you could have a work-life balance and what it means to like be a world Frisbee champion and yeah. you know um, all the downfalls of, of trying to accomplish something when you're at your lowest and you have to pull up to make it work and you hit it. And then, you know, family and entrepreneurship and stuff. So it's kind of a array of where I want to speak now, but mm -hmm. um, I, I really have a great talk about, I believe, like we've been talking a little bit about my experience at Patagonia and what it means to work for a company 
that has a mission, mm-hmm. that has core values, and has a purpose. And kind of define in the talk a little bit about what is the difference between a mission statement and a purpose. Mm. And how do you create, as you kind of leaned into earlier, excuse me, a collective consciousness around that with all of your employees? Mm-hmm. Like how do you get everybody to, you know, is it the benefits? Is it, you know, leave work for good? Is it the cafeteria? You know, how do you get your, 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 your band to all be moving in that same direction mm-hmm. of that purpose? You guys have a mission. And of course, the, the organization has these core values. And some of the Patagonians were like quality. You know, it had to work and last a lifetime. And integrity, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what Yvonne said once was, we should probably, we should be able to do this on a handshake instead of 17 files of contracts. Right. Um, and let's see if we can also not be bound by convention. You know, and I, I love that resonated with me back to that freestyle, you know. And, right, cool. Let's see if we can do business a different way. So it's getting businesses, my talks now about how that aligns. Mm-hmm. And then um, I am writing a book. Uh, Are you ready to? Um, yeah, I want it to be finished by this year, and it kind of coincides with Patagonia's 50th. It's my my 25 years at Patagonia, oh. and it's storytelling of the most amazing people I've met at that front desk. Uh-huh. My journeys at Patagonia that literally took me around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how I became an icon and a, a brand ambassador and. Uh, if I may, uh, 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 left a legacy yeah. um, for, with my personality and who I was and all that. All is in this book. And, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty cool. Um, I told Yvonne Chouinard that one time I, I was writing a book. And at the time I said, hey, Yvonne, I'm writing a book about Patagonia. I'm going to call it Inside the Mountain, The Truth of Patagonia. Oh, <laughs> and he, he turned to me really quick and he goes, you could. <laughs> <laughs> the receptionist sometimes knows way too much. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. So, and then, and then I want to be like you when I grow up and I think I'm going to uh, pop out a podcast soon. Good. And, You'd be uh, great at it. I got a list of fun friends on there. You know, I got these crazy ass stories too that need to be continued absolutely i have you on my list to be on the chipper (laughs) bro show (laughs) i love it absolutely got tons of stories that's for sure yeah we just tipping icebergs here oh my god that's for sure one one last question i want to ask you what's it what's it like to write a book are you like dedicating like every morning you're writing for an hour or two just a thousand words or how does that how does that play out You know, first of all, um, I uh, it I have a little bit of OCD, so unfortunately, sometimes I'll be writing yeah. and I'll start working on my grammar or working <laughs> on my my punctuations and my spelling. And a friend of mine said, "No, no, don't do that. Just start writing." Yeah, and 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 a come back later, mm-hmm. but just you're gonna miss something. So. I've been writing. 
a bit lately, and um, I have a, uh, a a lot of pages now. I have some chapters. Sweet. I have a direction where it's going, and I try to dedicate now. Uh, I'm a, a 5 a.m. guy. Yeah, I'll do my affirmations in the morning and give alignment with the universe, and then say what I want to do, and then I start proceed to do it in mm -hmm. um, getting this book written. So my goal was uh, May to have it in a frame, but not a hardcover yet, and I will have someone help me as well, you know, when we get to that editing part. And, sure. But I'm really working on words of the day. I'm yeah. expanding my vocabulary. <laughs> awesome. And yeah, yeah, more than more than uh yeah than i have and then uh um and i keep thinking of more stories so sometimes i'll be able to write it down i used to try to record it on my phone come back to it later yeah so i'll try to do that or try to write it down but my surf school has been down lately because of the weather yeah so i've been having a lot more time to work on the book oh that's cool that's cool i know i was supposed to do a surf class man and or a fly fishing in the surf class you know i've been going down there and doing these fly fishing in the surf classes and the beaches are just hammered <laughs> right yeah unbelievable right. man yeah hey you know that reminds me we could collaborate at another time to do a corporate retreat fyi who's ever listening yeah to have a fly fishing with your peeps yep. surfing with your peeps a little kayaking we'll serve some Boom. lunch let's do it and we'll make it a super fun day so great, man. Well, Chipper, I can't believe it. It's already been uh, over an hour or so, but uh, oh so, okay. e so easy to talk to you. And let's do this again, man. I mean, this is round one. Let's do round two. I really enjoyed it. And as I said earlier, um, I'm so happy I'm a dear friend of yours in my heart because yes. I've always been a big fan of yours. Oh, same here, buddy. So really cool bro thank you for the opportunity yeah man and uh hopefully i'll see you on the 18th huh okay yeah look and forward to it thanks buddy thanks so much for being on my podcast and uh hope to see you soon okay bye guys all right buddy bye bye it's a guy jeans podcast 